You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Cyber criminals are always going to continue to evolve and look for ways that they're making money. And right now they're doing it effectively. So I don't think we're we're going to see it going anywhere for the time being. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at a surprising federal district court decision that limits the Biden administration's contacts with big tech companies. I've got the story of research questioning the veracity of AI detectors. And later in the show, my conversation with Mark Lance from GuidePoint. We're talking about ransomware policy, negotiations, and payment impacts. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we got some good stuff to share this week. I know you've got an interesting one here. Uh, Why don't you kick things off for us? So while we were enjoying our 4th of July barbecues, a federal district court judge in Louisiana by the name of Terry Dowdy, he was an appointee of former President Trump, issued a ruling limiting Biden administration officials' contact with social media companies. Uh, This is a preliminary injunction, uh, but at least for the time being, it prohibits members of a bunch of different federal agencies from contacting these social media companies uh, for the purpose of recommending restricting content really for any reason. Okay. Uh, This is a very, this was a very broad-based lawsuit. It was filed not only by uh, some private individuals, uh, and I don't want to necessarily disparage them, but basically a lot of anti-vaxxers and other people who were canceled on social media for having views that didn't align with... um, the federal government, or or in some cases, reality. Uh, <laughs> so people who people who are fair to say at the fringe of some things. Yes. Okay. Yeah, especially on things like COVID policy, uh, vaccines. I see. Then the states uh, of the state of Missouri, uh, or the states of Missouri and Louisiana, also joined the lawsuit. The attorneys general of those states, saying that they had an interest in fostering free speech. Uh, in their own states, that it was in the state's direct interest to uh, join this lawsuit and limit the ability of federal agencies to interfere with uh, social media companies or what they saw uh, as interfering with social media companies. Okay. 
This is a First Amendment claim. The reason this claim is problematic to me and this decision is problematic to me is ultimately we're talking about the decision of a bunch of different private companies, Twitter, Meta, uh, and and others, Google and, and YouTube, yeah. to take down content that they don't want to have on their platform. And they are protected in those decisions by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Right. The allegation in this case is that the companies were acting at the behest of various government officials. Therefore, they were acting in concert or through coercion from the government. And the plaintiffs here have a First Amendment interest. Thus, uh, the court is requiring the seizing of all contact between government agencies and these tech companies. Hmm. I'll get into why I feel that is a little bit of a problematic viewpoint uh, in in just a second. So they go through all of these examples, and they did a lot of discovery in this case, of emails between various Biden administration officials, actually some Trump administration officials too. It goes back a few years. Right, because this was sort of— This kicked off because of the pandemic, right? Yes, kicked off in 2020 because of COVID. Not everything in the case is related to COVID. There's a lot related to Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean— (laughs) There's something for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) To understand this case, you do kind of have to be in the Fox News cinematic universe. Okay. And I clearly believe that this judge is in that universe. Okay. Um, He's just well-versed in these types of topics. All right. So uh, there are all these conversations, uh, some including rather explicit language where various government officials are pleading with these tech companies to take down false information about vaccines. Sometimes they're sending emails saying, what the F are you doing? Like, this is very dangerous. You have to take down this information. Right. Uh, The social media companies are responsive. They're saying, you know, we're trying to handle your request. Give us some time. We want to work with you. That's the general gist of these conversations. Hmm. If you're just looking at this, in my view, objectively, it's basically protected free speech on behalf of the government and the tech companies themselves. They are having a you can disagree with the contents of their conversation, but it is merely that, a conversation about what the government thinks is in the best interest of the public. And they are pleading with these tech companies to assist them in a governmental-wide effort to crack down on misinformation. Again, you can disagree that this is misinformation. Many people do. Uh, and you can disagree that the government should be involved at, at all in this. Yeah. Uh, but where the problem comes in for me is this idea that it was coercion. Hmm. So how does he argue that it was coercion? He does that in a number of ways. One of them is saying that— this is the, He is the judge. He being the judge, Dowdy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways he argues coercion is saying that the government implicated or implied through various remarks and private conversations that there would be consequences for the tech companies if they did not comply. Hmm. All of the language to that effect was very vague, and I think it's definitely a stretch to interpret it as some kind of threat. Oftentimes, it was the government just saying something like, we need to do something about this. Like, you guys, are, you guys aren't being cooperative. Something needs to be done about this. Right. Whether you view that as a specific threat sufficient enough to limit direct contact between social media companies and a presidential administration— Uh, that just seems to me to be a stretch. The other thing he mentioned is that there was a congressional effort at play potentially to take away Section 230 protection for these companies, and that in and of itself was an implicit threat causing coercion. But 
In my view, nothing in the conversations in the record really indicates that type of quid pro quo where the government says, you cooperate with us or we're taking away your liability shield. That just never happened. Separately, there was an effort in Congress from members of both parties to cut, uh, cut against Section 230 uh, protection uh, for these for these tech companies. But there was just no evidence that that was related to these requests to take down information. Uh, so where we are now is because of this preliminary injunction, which, impl- uh, which applies nationwide, members of, for example, uh, NIH or HHS cannot communicate with executives from Twitter. Not that Twitter would communicate with them these days. Uh, <laughs> right. Meta or Google about false information and the need to take down false information. That would yeah. be a violation of this court order. Um, this is just a preliminary injunction. Theoretically, this judge will hear the full case. They'll have a trial where he'll be able to consider uh, evidence. The Biden administration uh, will bring the best Justice Department lawyers to the table uh, to argue their case. I'm sure the Biden administration is going to pursue an appeal uh, to the federal circuit court. Once again, I believe that would be the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which mm. is uh, extremely conservative. Yeah. And eventually that could make its way up to the United States Supreme Court if this uh, decision is sustained. Um, and in <laughs> and my it, view— And we look forward to a 6-3 decision. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we could probably see where that is going. Right, right. I just think you're really inhibiting the ability for a constructive dialogue between government officials and big tech companies about how to be responsible regarding false information. Whether that information is about vaccines, whether it's about uh, election conspiracies, at the very least, I think the dialogue is productive. And to prevent even that dialogue, even if you're not demanding or, uh, you know, coercing these big tech companies to take down content, the fact that we're limiting this dialogue not only is bad from a policy perspective, in my view, but that in and of itself is a major limitation on free speech. Huh. So I think in trying to protect free speech, this judge is really inhibiting free speech. Uh, and that's why I, I just think this was a puzzling and, and problematic decision. I'll also note, he released he could have released this decision any day. I believe the final briefs in this case were due in May. Uh-huh. He decided to release it on the 4th of July. Um, which I think was on purpose, just as kind of a political message, First Amendment, America, freedom. Uh, <laughs> you think? Really? Yeah. And I'm, I just am, frankly, a little bit cynical about that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that caught my eye here is is that among the groups who are prohibited from communicating uh, is uh, CISA director Jen Easterly, Um this is the organization that is tasked with uh, protecting our our nation, our organizations uh, from cyber attacks. So to mute the leader of that organization from communicating with uh, the organizations she is tasked with helping protect and by extension protect the security of you, me, and our, and our nation and, uh, dare I say, the world— uh, this seems short-sighted to me. It certainly does seem short-sighted. Uh, I think that's going to be a major secondary impact of this decision is a major inhibition on information ser- uh, sharing as it relates to cybersecurity. Yeah. Even if it's not a uh, direct prohibition as it relates to CISA, I mean, I think they can have, they can get around this ruling with 
public meetings and not directly discussing some of the uh, various prohibited items here, um, it still could have a chilling effect where uh, suddenly Jen Easterly and uh, Sissa is just concerned to have this conversation, which is bad in and of itself. Right. Um, I mean, those back-channel conversations are important, right? Right, especially, I mean, this is one of the goals of Sissa is to foster information sharing. Right. uh, And information sharing on potential issues uh, so yeah, the fact that CISA was even involved in this litigation is problematic. I mean, kind of everyone was involved in this litigation. A lot of different plaintiffs had a lot of different complaints about a lot of different defendants. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to end up seeing a ruling here that's extremely broad in, in how it's being handled. Uh, I think it's, uh, applies to far more potential conversations that any of the parties involved might have anticipated. And that's another uh, secondary effect of this decision. Part of what fascinates me about this is that, you know, during um, all the controversy with the election, uh, you know, uh, former President Trump's uh, accusations and all that kind of thing, and we were talking about uh, these platforms, and you and I uh, discussed many times how these platforms are private companies and when a lot of the criticism that people would wield against these companies were that through their um, through their moderation, through their censorship, that they were violating the First Amendment. And you and I would say over and over again, that's not what the First Amendment does. It, it, the First Amendment is protect us from the government but what do we know? I mean— well, No, this- no, no, but this is what I'm getting to, though, is that, I mean, that that's, that's what this is going at, right? Is that they're saying that that's the exact thing that's going on here, is that the government is having undue influence, and that's violating the First Amendment rights of the platforms and, by extension, their users— isn't that's the argument they're making, right? Yeah, that is the argument they're making. And, uh, and I just think that's an argument that goes too far. I think they are drawing lines and connections that are undue, that shouldn't be connected. I think the standard, even the court admits in its decision that the standard is relatively high to show coercion. Yeah. Uh, it has to be something where there's a direct connection between the government's action or implied threats and the response of these tech companies. Now, he does say that even if the tech companies were to make these decisions anyway, coercion can still be a valid cause of action here. It still could be a, a inhibition on free speech. Right. I just think expanding this definition of coercion to something so broad where even a discussion or a recommendation or you know, a plea to these companies to change their practices qualifies as that type of uh, coercion, I just think is a huge stretch legally. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think most legal scholars agree that that is just a a bridge too far. And all different types of government actions, normal everyday conversations between government officials and private sector uh, industries, if that is going to be seen as coercion, even if there's no explicit threat, then we're going to have a very difficult time uh, having kind of public-private partnerships, engagement between federal agencies and companies on things like cybersecurity. So, yeah, I do think it's—I really do think it's dangerous in that respect. Do you think this is the kind of thing that could come back and bite them in the butt? (laughs) You know, if they get what they want through this case, could there be unintended consequences 
you know, let's say you know things shift the other way. We have a different person, uh, you know, a different uh, parties in in power in the White House, uh, and suddenly they can't communicate with this, the, the social media platforms in ways that they want. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, if the, sh- you know, the shoe could could go to the other foot, and I could definitely see that being a possibility. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess if 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 if. It's fair to say that uh, one, uh, if you if you're looking to get rid of misinformation, right? That which is what we're trying to do here: public health, uh, you know, those those kinds of things, anti-vax type of things. Um, I guess it's fair to say the majority of that is coming from one side. Yeah, and actually, and what's interesting is the. Uh, judge in this case kind of reframes that issue and says, all of this bias here that we're alleging in this case seems to be happening against political conservatives. Well, I think the other side would say that's because that's where the misinformation is coming from. Yeah, although it's on- fair. I mean, a lot of anti-vax stuff comes from the left. Yeah, I right? mean, certainly. it's it, it was a movement that started on the left wing yeah, yeah. with people like uh, RFK Jr., current presidential candidate. Right. Um. And I do think restrictions on social media that are overbroad, uh, it's definitely a valid public policy concern. These restrictions can be overbroad. Uh-huh. Uh, but I just think you're trying to address this problem with a with a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. Uh, and you're, you're taking an action that's going to have a more deleterious effect than simply having a constructive dialogue with these tech companies about... Um, you know, overbroad regulation. Even something like the Twitter files, which I laughed at and, and disagreed with uh, yeah. to a large extent. Yeah. At least that was just a conversation. It was a response from individuals online saying what Twitter was doing was uh, was overbroad, was overly restrictive, and we should have a constructive conversation about it uh, and work together to come up with a better solution. But this is not that. I mean, this is the the full force of the judicial branch coming down on these companies, and I think that's just going to be, um, that's just going to be a problem. Yeah, it's going to be a problem. How do you? What's our timeline here for this playing out? Uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, <laughs> we have this preliminary injunction. Maybe we get a full hearing uh, and a uh, complete decision by the end of this calendar year. Hmm. Probably goes to the court of appeals. Maybe that's another year. I could see this being two or three years down the line before we get to uh, whether the Supreme Court even decides to hear it. Uh, and depending on what happens on appeal either uh, in a full hearing in the district court or in the court of appeals, um, it's kind of 50-50 whether uh, the Supreme Court would take it up. Yeah. What about the injunction itself? Is, is, uh, does the Biden administration have an—are they appealing that to try to get that lifted in the yes, meantime? Yes, they, they haven't yet, but it is almost a, a certainty that they will, and I could see that happening in the next couple of days. Uh, I don't think they're just going to take this standing by. They've already released statements through the Justice Department saying they disagree with the decision, and I could certainly see them uh, seeking to appeal it um, probably by the time this podcast airs. Yeah, I guess why? Why now? Why? Why? Why the force of an injunction like this? What? What made uh, this judge decide that this needed to happen at this moment? Are, are you? You're making the case that this is mostly just uh, political posturing. I don't want to 
cast dispersions on this judge. Uh, I will note he was a Trump judge. He was confirmed 98 to 0. Okay. Uh, So I think he was a respectable figure, but it is hard to figure out why now. I mean, I guess he would say this is when the litigation came before him. Uh Um, But... uh, you know, I, I I don't have a great answer to that question. I guess my question is why, why an injunction rather than letting the case play out? What what was so what was uh, so important that in his estimation that he needed from the bench to put a stop to this immediately without at this before the case makes its way through? Right, it was that important. I mean. If you really believe that this is an inhibition on First Amendment rights and that it would cause irreparable harm, that is the standard for a preliminary injunction. If you believe that the plaintiffs would succeed on the merits and that this would cause irreparable harm, as he seems to believe here, yeah. then a preliminary injunction makes sense. I don't happen to believe either of those things. Right. So I, th- I think it doesn't make sense from my perspective. But, but you're from not the a judge's, judge. <laughs> yeah, from the judge's perspective. <laughs> right, yes. right. Here from the cheap seats, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's certainly an interesting one, and uh, obviously we will keep a close eye on this one. It's It's... Fascinating, right? It sure is, yes. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, my story uh, this week, a uh, little lighter, but also something uh, important. Uh, this has to do with artificial intelligence and uh, uh, detecting the use of it. Um, you know, let me start out by asking you, Ben, because you are a professor. Yes, you, I am. You, yep. uh, you teach law and you have many students. Uh, so let's rewind the clock a little bit. Before... Any of this AI stuff hit the hit the world before ChatGPT was uh, you know, captured our imagination. Um, you surely had cases where you suspected that a student may have been cheating. Yeah, many many times. Usually, what would happen is I would catch them writing in a different font in our like Blackboard page. Oh, um, and I get to know the students well enough that I. Uh, understand what their writing style is, and when the writing style does not match what they've copied and pasted, right. all become suspicious, for sure. Okay. And how would you address that? I would copy and paste the entire passage and put it into a Google search uh-huh. uh, and see if I got a direct match with some type of secondary source. And unfortunately, very frequently, I, I would get that match. I see. Then what? Uh, then I would go through uh, the official law school disciplinary process. Uh, yeah. So I would usually give the student one chance to correct the behavior. And if it happened again, I would refer the uh, student to the relevant academic committee. They would conduct an investigation and decide what the appropriate punishment would be. I see. Um, it's just according to whatever the institution's honor code is and... Our honor code, obviously, uh, is uh, adamantly against this type of plagiarism without attribution. Um, Consequences ranging from failing the class to, uh, if there are multiple instances, uh, expulsion. I see. Yeah. So this article uh, caught my eye. Uh, This is written by uh, Janelle Shane, who writes a blog called AI Weirdness, where where they track uh, the goings-ons of of different uh, AI uh, issues. Um, And in this blog post, um, they're noting some research uh, that I believe was from Cornell, a study from Cornell, 
um, that was looking at AI detectors. So similarly to how you were saying you, know, you could copy and paste something into Google to see if you get a hit on it, there are a number of tools out there now that claim to be able to detect uh, whether or not something was generated by AI. And what this study did was it put in text from non-native speakers, uh, non-native English speakers, into these detectors. And they found that these tools between 48 and 76% of the time flagged non-native speakers' writings as being AI-generated. And this compared to 0 to 12% for native speakers. Yeah, that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> you think? Um, so obviously we have a huge false positive issue here. Now, you and I have talked about before about false positives with things like facial recognition. Um, it seems to me like you know any of these automated systems have these huge problems with false positives and... Uh, just in the, the same way that facial recognition systems uh, seem to have trouble with people of color, uh, these systems have trouble with um, folks who are non-native English speakers. Once again, our machine overlords are just as biased as we humans are, sometimes even more biased. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is going to have consequences uh, because somebody who is a non-native English speaker is going to be accused of some type of academic violation, plagiarism based on a flaw in the software. Yeah. Uh, and that's a really bad outcome. I mean, it's completely unfair for somebody to face that accusation when they never used ChatGPT uh, or any other AI for that matter. Right. So that's where it becomes problematic. The author uh, of this blog post uh, took a paragraph from their own book that they wrote. Uh, so your previous writing that they'd done, uh, ran it through a detector, and the writing was flagged as being likely AI written. So then the author took that same passage, ran it through ChatGPT, and said, rephrase this, please. Ran, and then ran it through a detector, and the detector said, no, this is probably human-written. So <laughs> the total opposite of what they were trying to achieve. Right? Yeah, it's uh, more useless than if you just flipped a coin 50-50 <laughs> at random to determine whether it was AI-generated or not. Right. So let's get back to the original thing here, though. I mean, you, as a professor, you've certainly thought about this. Uh, I have thought about it a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, where do you stand right now when it comes to using these tools? I would not use one of these detection uh, tools based on this story. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of choosing between the lesser of evils, mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like I, using my own intuition on whether a student used artificial intelligence uh, is just as effective, if not more effective, than using one of these detectors. Yeah. Uh, and I'd rather have it be my own mistake than trusting some type of detector and having that as a determinant in potentially punishing a student. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, at least for the time being, until these tools can become more effective and can take into account non-native English speakers. I have a lot of non-native uh, English speakers in my classes. Uh -huh. um, they are some of my best students, and the thought of a false accusation against one of them is just too much for me to bear uh, at this point. So until the technology gets better, I'm going to be very, very uh, reticent to use it. You know, from a higher level, I, I wonder about um, 
you know, when I was uh, a kid coming up through school and, and through college even, um, this was a time when uh, not everybody was using word processors for everything. I guess by the time I was in college, pretty much everybody was. But certainly through high school, uh, it was some people had access to the technology and other people didn't. And so this brought up the issue of whether or not it should be uh, allowed to use a spell checker. Right. right. Because for many teachers, particularly English teachers, spelling counts. Yeah. Well, spelling doesn't count anymore. Right. You know, I think my, my own kids coming up through school, I have a kid who's in high school. Uh, they don't have, I mean, spelling, spelling and grammar all get tagged. All the work they do, they're using the Google suite of tools. Right. The school uses the Google suite of tools, and it automatically flags grammar and spelling. And that's a change, and right. we're okay with that. We, we, we all assume now that that is a set of tools that everyone has access to, so why not in the real world? And I wonder to what degree are these new AI tools just going to become like spell check, like grammar check, uh, a tool that is part of the, the regular word processing suite that you have, and we just need to adapt to that reality. Yeah, I think it's very possible. Uh, and sometimes it can just be like there can be a time lag between when the technology is available and when we can trust things like detection software. Mm. Uh, and maybe we're going to get better at it. Uh, I just think we're not at that point yet, and it's better to be safe than sorry until we get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think it may require a rethinking, though, of how we test our students. I think it will definitely require a rethinking. Uh, I mean, I have already thought about it in my own courses. Uh, you can tell students, you know, on your honor, as part of this honor code, you are not to use any type of AI software in exams and papers, et cetera. But if it's so difficult to detect, you know, law school is very, very competitive. Some students are going to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so in the long run, we have to think about integrating these tools. Um Maybe the test of aptitude is the input that a person puts in a chat GPT. I think we're a long way from, from that being the case. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, we are going to have to adapt just like we adapted to calculators and Grammarly and, and everything right. else. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just I'm laughing because I'm thinking about all the teachers when I was coming up who said, no, you can't use a calculator. You're not going to have a calculator with you all the time. Not it's in like, your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, no, I don't have a calculator. I have a supercomputer with access to all the world's knowledge <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Little did you know, Mrs. <laughs> right, So-and-so. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, my son uh, was taking finals and uh, for his English final, uh, they had to, the teacher had them do it handwritten. Okay. And my son was like, I haven't handwritten anything in years. And my wrist was exhausted <laughs> because yeah. I have, oh, like, yeah. my handwriting is terrible because everything they do these days for everyone's convenience is, is done electronically. So kids know how to type, but they don't know how to write. I know. The carpal tunnel is awful. <laughs> I've definitely been there recently, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. I've, I was recently wrote a bunch of handwritten notes, and I was like, oh, man. This, this is, hurts, yeah. Ugh. Even just, like, signing forms now. We're just not yeah. used to it. No, yeah. no, it's funny. All right, well, uh, I guess buyer beware when it comes to these AI detectors. It Caveat seems to me, M tour, if you will. Yes, yes. It seems to me like um, uh, they're just not reliable. Just, you can't. Uh, and, and I would say also the message is that if someone 
is using one of these to try to, if you get accused of something and it's based on one of these tools, you have a very, very good case right. to push back against these tools and, and should certainly do so. All right. Well, those are our stories for this week. We will have links to those in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Lance from GuidePoint, and we were talking about ransomware, particularly some of the uh, policy issues, uh, the ongoing question about negotiations, and the impact of making payments for ransom. Here's my conversation with Mark Lance. If you look at the history and just kind of the evolution of, of ransomware as a whole, it started out largely opportunistic, and over time, they started targeting businesses. Businesses are going to have larger sums of money um, than individuals would. And so, you know, using more targeted attack techniques, evolving into, you know, clients knew that they should have backups. Well, specifically targeting backups. And then even when they were able to recover and restore effectively, that's when they moved over to the double extortion techniques where they're stealing a bunch of information. And even if you're able to successfully recover from backups, um, and, you know, restore your environment to, to full operations, they're still going to try to get their ransom payment, you know, through extortion of uh, and, and kind of the data or information that they've taken from their, their environment and prevention from having them leak that on what they would consider their, their news or their name and shame sites. And so I think over time, you know, they've, they've continued their evolution and sophistication all with the goal of monetary gains. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what these cyber criminals are after is, you know, specifically when it comes to, to e-crime is, is making money. So anything that they can do to try to drive that, you know, the, the potential that they're going to receive that ransom payment, they're going to pull any levers or they're going to flip any switches that they can in order to try to, to achieve that goal, which is those monetary gains. I think over time, again, like you mentioned, the basis was, you know, don't pay ransomware threat actors. You don't know if you're going to get your information back. You don't know if you're going to, you know, successfully be able to recover your infrastructure. And now you've funded a criminal group. Over time, um, again, these groups are built with the intent to make money. So now they rely heavily on things like reputation of their a criminal organization, the brand that their criminal organization has, and even being able to successfully, you know, recover or decrypt people's information, <clears throat> pardon me, as well as, you know, ensuring that, you know, once they have 
receive payment, that your information isn't going to be posted their name and shame site, that it isn't going to be leaked because at the end of the day, if they're not delivering upon what people are paying them for, it's going to affect their brand. It's going to affect their reputation and people are going to stop paying that group. So for instance, if you're using something like Royal as an example, which is a, is a threat group we track, if you know people are paying Royal, they're not getting the decryption keys or they're still being posted and all their information is being leaked, they're going to have the reputation of don't pay Royal because they still you know, release all your information. And then at the end of the day, that leads to them not getting ransom payments, which again is their primary motivation is monetary gains. So again, long explanation to what you said, but I, you know, these, these organizations and, and criminal organizations are purpose built to make money. And so they're doing whatever they can and taking whatever steps that they can to ensure that that occurs. Yeah, as you mentioned, in the early days, I, I remember specifically the FBI saying, you know, whatever you do, don't pay the ransom. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to fund a criminal enterprise. And I'm curious, where do we stand now when organizations are making this risk assessment and they're trying to decide how are we going to come at this? We found ourselves victim of, of a ransomware group. Perhaps they're threatening a double extortion, like you say, posting our information out there. How does that conversation go among the decision makers as to how to approach the paying of the ransom? Yeah, there's a, a lot of different reasons or, or, you know, what organizations might feel is business justification to go ahead and, and make a ransom payment. Like you'd mentioned early on, the guidance was, you know, don't pay them. You're not getting your information back, but we've seen you know, where over time that has changed. And in most circumstances, you'll see where they'll do everything within their power, including escalations to different members of their internal support organizations and providing updated or revised versions of decryptors um, to make sure that you are actually able to, to get what you're paying for. Now, I think that, again, there are a lot of potential reasons that our clients have to go and make a determination on whether they might consider making that ransom payment. It could be that they have lost critical information and access to systems that if they're not able to recover because they don't have backups, they feel like it's going to cause issues with their business and they're not going to be able to appropriately recover operations in a sufficient manner so that they can you know, re recover from the incident. So in that situation, they might pay for decryption keys so that they can actually restore and recover their environment. There are other times based on the extortion where some clients, even though they do have viable backups and they're able to recover operations, we've seen where they've made a determination to perform the ransom payment because they want to do the incident and breach disclosure on their own uh, timelines. Instead of having it leaked on the on the threat actor's name and shame site, they feel like, you know, they would prefer to do it through, you know, assistance with external counsel, you know, public relations and, and disclosure requirements to do it more effectively on their own terms. Um, we've also had instances where, you know, clients have had access to backups, 
but recovery or access to those backups was going to take a considerable amount of time. And so it was actually more effective than them for them and cheaper for them to make the ransom payment and get the decryption keys so that they could expedite the recovery process. As an example, I mean, we worked with one um, healthcare system that had offsite backups, but it was going to take them two weeks to get access to those and start the recovery process. Hmm. Uh, each day that they were down, they were losing a million to $2 million, which over the span of two weeks, you do the math, is anywhere from you know, 14 to $28 million that they're potentially going to lose. Based on that, and that the, the ransom request was only $2 million, they decided to expedite the ransom payment because by getting that decryption tool, they were able to initiate the decryption process within a matter of four to five days versus waiting those two weeks. And so paying the ransom was actually cheaper for them to than, than, um, than you know, recovering with what they had available. So a lot of different considerations and what businesses might consider justification to make a ransom payment. I think at the end of the day, clients should continue to take the position that we're not making a ransom payment if we don't have to or don't have the necessity to. But again, it comes down to a business decision on whether they believe there is that necessity. And what part do insurance companies play in this? As, as this decision is being made, are they are they at the table? Are they you know, trying to... Uh, minimize their own exposure and saying, well, maybe paying the ransom is the best for everyone here. It ultimately is going to come down to the client's evaluation of of their business requirements and determination on what they want to do. Now, availability of cyber insurance and coverage does have an impact on that because if you're potentially paying a ransom out of pocket, versus having an insurance policy that provides coverage for ransom amounts up to a certain dollar value, you might be more inclined to go ahead and make that ransom payment because you have the coverage, despite whether, you know, you have a full necessity to do it. You know, when we talk about the professionalization of these ransomware groups, and one of the arguments for not paying them has been, you don't know whether or not they'll just come back for a second helping. You know, they'll you'll pay the ransom, they'll come back and say, "Hey, this is great. Now give us some more." What's the reality of that? Are are we seeing the ransomware organizations are they generally if you treat them professionally, you pay them, do they live up to their word and and go on their way and and let you get on with things? I believe they do because they they have again this reputation this and this brand that they, they have to uphold. Um so Again, say you're using another uh, cyber criminal group, Bienlian, as as an example. Yeah. Um, if they were to target your environment, you make a ransom payment to them, and to to get access back to your information um, through decryption tools, as well as to prevent the name and shame, and then Bienlian comes back and hits your organization again. You know, three months later, six months later, people are going to be like, "Well, stop paying them." because they're just going to come back and continue to impact you. So where I think we see reoccurrence from a single group to be rare because, again, they have that reputation that they need to uphold um, and that brand that they have to uphold that you're getting what you're paying for. I do think, and we have seen 
where they where they are leaving back doors and maintaining persistence into the environment. And again, they're they're driven by monetary gains. So what we believe happens in some circumstances is they then go make more money off of the access into your environment by selling you to a different group or in a different affiliate or somebody else than they can make more money off of. And you might be impacted by a different threat group, um, you know, three to six months down the road if you haven't addressed the, the methods of ingress and all the back doors that they've identified. But I, I think it's uncommon for them to hit a, sing, a single group to hit a client multiple times. Instead, they would traditionally hit them, probably sell their access in their back doors to another group who then could perform similar operations in the future, but then it comes across as a different brand or a different rep- uh, representative. That way, they don't, it's not going to harm their reputation. Hmm. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, I, 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 it sounds funny saying it, but it, it, have we reached a, a, a sort of point of equilibrium here where you know, ransomware actors are kind of here to stay. We've got tools to parry them. We have insurance. We have, you know, we do backups, all those kinds of things. It doesn't seem like we're going to eliminate them anytime soon. Is is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think ransomware is going anywhere. If you're using Conti as an example, uh, who disbanded earlier this year, you know, based on some of the results of the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, which I don't know if you want me to cover some of that, but um, using Conti as, as an example prior to them disbanding. Once the Russia-Ukraine conflict occurred, Conti initially came out and said, we fully back Russia. Well, that wasn't smart because they have operators and people who are working out of the Ukraine. So all of a sudden there's this inner turmoil within the criminal organization and they start leaking information, their SOPs, wallet information. And one of the things that we were able to track is that Conti, within the year and a half that they were operational, they had collected over $2 billion in ransom funds. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about monetary gains and dollar values associated with these criminal organizations, we're not talking about trivial amounts. They, you know, again, that was a year and a half of operations and $2 billion. So this is very lucrative for these threat groups. Um, they're making a ton of money and they're doing it effectively. So for right now, I don't see ransomware going anywhere. Um, I do think we are seeing some positive trends that are driven by, you know, even cyber insurance based on some of the insurability requirements and, and, you know, minimum sets of technologies and processes and policies and people you have to have in place um, that are driving positive trends and, you know, core fundamentals and, and strategies that clients have that, you know, security researchers and consultants have been advocating for for years. So I do think that's driving positive trends. But if you're these cyber criminals are always going to continue to evolve and look for ways that they're making money. And right now they're doing it effectively. So I don't think we're we're going to see it going anywhere for the time being. Ben, what do you think? Really interesting. I mean, definitely a topic we're going to study going forward, particularly as it relates to uh, global network resilience and protecting public and private networks from ransomware. So uh, I I definitely appreciated the interview. Is this something that comes up with your law students, the the policy implications of of paying ransomware and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, it comes up in law classes and also in ethics classes, Ah. uh, sociology classes. I mean, 
this is not a purely technological issue. Uh, just like negotiating any type of hostage situation requires actual negotiation skills. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that comes up. It's something we've thought about a lot. Interesting. All right. Well, our thanks to Mark Lance from GuidePoint for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at caveat at n2k.com. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.